0: Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com Wondery. Rocketmoney.com Wondery.
1: Rafael Mariano Grossi, head of the UN nuclear watchdog, monitors the threat of nuclear weapons in Iran, North Korea, and Russia. We are
2: moving ahead.
1: And as you'll hear, he is sounding a serious warning about the current situation in Ukraine. When I realized that a nuclear power plant was under attack, I, my mind It's mind even... boggling
3: This is the holy grail of World Cup sticker albums. And this guy has five of them. And he ain't selling. Jeez. Floor to ceiling. He lives in what is less a home than a sticker repository. Even in your daughter's room. He has half a million stickers spilling out of every drawer. Valuable sheets are everywhere, even (laughs) hidden under a tablecloth. No one is allowed to eat on the table because it's too sacred. It's very rare. These are all rare.
4: It's hard to imagine anything surviving on this expanse of badlands in northern Wyoming. Sagebrush blankets the high desert all the way to the Rocky Mountains. But in this empty quarter of the Cowboy State is a thundering herd of Mustangs. Untouched, wild, and breathtakingly beautiful. What's happening to these thousands of wild horses? That's our story tonight.
1: I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper.
4: I'm Sharon Alfonsi.
3: I'm John Wertheim.
5: I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories and more tonight on 60 Minutes.
6: Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A N G I. Or download the app today.
7: Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop.
1: Sixty years ago to the day, November 20th, the world sighed in relief as the Cuban Missile Crisis ended. It was the closest we ever came to nuclear Armageddon till now, with Russia threatening to use nuclear weapons in the war. And then there's the dire and deteriorating condition of Europe's biggest nuclear power plant, Zaporizhia, in Russian-occupied Ukraine. The situation is carefully monitored by the International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna, the UN's nuclear watchdog tasked with making sure nuclear facilities are safe and atomic material is used only for peaceful purposes. Its director general, Rafael Mariano Grossi, recently inspected the site, which may be the most dangerous place in the world. So correct me if I'm wrong. Is yeah. this the first time a major power plant has been under fire in the middle of a war?
2: Well, it's, it's an unprecedented thing, really, in so many ways. This place is at the front line, which makes the whole thing so volatile and in need of an urgent um, action.
1: Zaporizhia has been shelled repeatedly since March, with both sides blaming each other. Before the war, the plant supplied 20 percent of Ukraine's power. It's now largely idle. But the reactors still need to be constantly cooled down with circulating water. If they overheat, it could lead to nuclear catastrophe within hours. The whole system is being cooled by electricity that's coming in from the town and there's shelling. So what would happen if that electricity went down?
2: What you have in that situation is emergency systems that kick in, like diesel generators that you can have in a private property. And you don't want the biggest nuclear power plant in Europe, one of the biggest in the world, to be cooled with with basically an emergency system, which is dependent on fuel. Because when your diesels are out of whatever you put in it to make them work, then what happens? Then you have a meltdown, then you have a big... Uh, radiological nuclear emergency or an accident, and this is what we are trying to prevent.
1: So this situation is totally precarious.
2: Total. Until we have this plant protected, the possibility of a nuclear catastrophe is there.
1: Possibly dwarfing Chernobyl, a far smaller Ukrainian plant that famously blew up 36 years ago. In late August, after months of negotiating with both sides, Director General Grossi led his agency's first mission into an active war zone to inspect the
2: stability of the site. And as we were approaching the last Ukrainian uh, checkpoint, we started hearing um, shooting. Quite heavy shooting, very close to us. Speed
1: up, speed up everyone, speed up, move through.
2: So at that point, uh, even the people on the checkpoint were running for shelter.
1: Do you think that the convoy itself was a target?
2: I think it was a clear attempt to to stop us, to say, go home, this is not your place.
1: But they proceeded. There were soldiers, tanks and armored trucks everywhere. The Russians are actually using the nuclear plant as their military base. When you went to visit to inspect, you could go anywhere? Yes.
2: You weren't kept from... Yes, you know, we are the IEA. We are known as the nuclear watchdog.
1: Well, there are reports that you weren't allowed into some crisis room, into the control room. Is that not true?
2: Well, there were areas that w- where we were limited, but all the things we needed to see, we could see. You didn't want to see the control room? Yeah, we did want to see it, but for us what is important is to be looking at the essential nuclear uh, operation of the plant. And this we could see. That included
1: evidence that rockets had come dangerously close to the reactors and other
2: sensitive areas. I was on the top of a building where they are storing fresh fuel, the fuel that is going to go uh, into, the, into the reactors. And, nuclear
1: and fuel is what we're talking fuel, about.
2: Nuclear fuel. And I could see very big holes on, on, on that on the roof. roof. Yeah. Uh, at least two. I saw very, very big. On a satellite photo, he also pointed out the switchyard where the electricity comes in from the town. So this is where the, the uh, external power comes to cool the reactors down. And this place was shelled several times, several times, which tells you that people were knew exactly what, what they, they were, were doing. They were trying to cut off here, the power here, source. Here, exactly.
1: Shelling also destroyed one of the plant's office buildings. These pictures were given to us by Andre Tuz a plant spokesman who fled Ukraine after working four months under Russian occupation. So tell us what that was like, working inside that plant under Russian occupation. Yes, uh, Russian troops uh,
5: take all our uh, top manager uh, with gun, and uh, um, uh, they do only what Russian troops want.
1: Did you feel like a hostage?
5: Yes, yes. I feel like I am a prisoner uh, in this nuclear power plant. I cannot say nothing, because they go with guns.
1: There have been reports of imprisonments, kidnappings, and torture of Ukrainian employees. The head of the plant was detained. Andrei Tuz told us about the pressure one of the safety inspectors felt.
5: It's his work to go and check some pumps, how it works how parameter, what pressure, what temperature. But he go, and Russian tanks stay in front of him. It's terrible. He cannot do his work. It's to protect uh, nuclear fuel, to control nuclear reaction.
1: When you're operating at a nuclear power plant, and you're under stress, and you're worried, and you're feeling threatened, doesn't that lead to the possibility of human error?
2: Of course. Yes.
1: And the shelling goes on.
2: And the shelling goes on. And this is why uh, we have been trying. I have been uh, pushing uh, for the establishment of a protection zone, which is basically don't attack the plant. Mr. President. Russia. Good nice to see you. See you. He took his proposal to
1: both President Zelensky in Kyiv and President Putin in a one-on-one meeting last month in St. Petersburg. Interestingly... You sat very close to him. Actually, I think closer than you and I are right now.
2: Maybe, yes. Would
1: you say that he is familiar with what's going on? Absolutely. At this
2: nuclear plant? He knows every detail of it, which was uh, surprising to me. In my conversation with him, I could see that he had a very detailed knowledge, uh, not only of the layout of the, of the plant, but also, and very importantly, of the electrical access. Uh, the the external uh, power source so uh, where these it,
1: things are being bombed it,
2: it is a facility that he knows uh, that he knows very well
1: is mr putin trying to use this plant as a weapon and we know that he's weaponized energy in this war because of the way he's used oil and gas it just raises the question whether this plant is seen in his mind as a way to squeeze the ukrainians Someone said to us the other day, you know, this is his dirty bomb, this plant.
2: Yeah, but uh, if you protect it, there's no dirty bomb.
1: On Monday, the day we met Grossi, Presidents Joe Biden and Xi Jinping met in Bali and condemned Putin's threat to use a nuclear weapon. And in Turkey, CIA director William Burns warned his Russian counterpart of the consequences of such a move. Here we are talking about the possibility of a dirty bomb or a a real bomb. I mean, this kind of idea of nuclear Armageddon, because countries are now throwing the idea of using a nuclear weapon. Yes. They're just throwing it up in the air.
2: When you talk about using nuclear weapons, as you could use this mortar or that howitzer or that, I mean, this is a completely different ballgame.
1: So heads of state should not be... Throwing this around.
2: They should not be doing that.
1: Rafael Grossi, at 61, has been working to prevent the proliferation of nukes for almost four decades. He's seen here with his fellow Argentinian, Pope Francis, and his children, seven daughters and one son. Come on, guys. We watched him coaching his son's soccer team on a rare day off. He's been particularly busy, given the number of rogue states suspected of developing a bomb. How close is Iran to making a nuclear bomb?
2: At the current level of production of this enriched uranium, Iran has accumulated already enough material um, to have uh, more than one device, if they chose to do that. But we don't have any information that would indicate that Iran has a nuclear weapon program at the moment. Really? Really.
1: So if I said to you, have we reached the point of no return with Iran, is it time to just admit they're a nuclear power?
2: No, we haven't reached that point. But we need to work very hard so we don't get there.
1: Director General is concerned about another country that has become a member of the nuclear club, North Korea, which is expected to conduct its first underground nuclear test since 2017. And that's not the only issue on his plate in the Pacific. The Chinese are protesting the sale of eight nuclear submarines by the United States mm-hmm. and Great Britain mm-hmm. to Australia. Yes, The subs contain nuclear Mm. war material. Mm -hmm. Do you protest this sale?
2: If they want to do this, they have to have a special arrangement with us. And
1: does Australia have a special arrangement with you?
2: We have started working on that, which means that we should be able to come to an agreement that would allow us to inspect uh, this nuclear material in an appropriate way so that it is not diverted, used to make bombs.
1: Do you think this agreement, if it should come to pass, would satisfy the Chinese? Have you talked to China and China has
2: a very firm position against this. Yes. They have been very critical of it. They have even been very critical of me.
1: There's this issue of a double standard. You know, if the sale was to Libya, the West would be screaming, and that it's Australia, well, you know, they get a pass. Double well, standard question.
2: They may get their pass. They will not get mine until I have a satisfactory agreement.
1: I want to go back to the nuclear power plant for one second. i yeah. into Zaporizhia. When I realized that a nuclear power plant was under attack,
2: I, my mind it's can't even calibrate yeah. what this means. Exactly. The demand for protection of the plant is is very important. You don't shell a nuclear power plant. You don't storm a nuclear power plant.
1: What about using a nuclear power plant as a military base?
2: This is part of the agreement I have proposed.
1: Yeah, but no one's agreeing. They will. You think?
2: I think. You're always optimistic. This is you. I must. Should I throw the towel if I do that?
7: That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500.
4: Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
3: The World Cup kicked off today in Qatar, and while you'll hear all manner of olays and alays over the next four weeks, this might be the event's ultimate soundtrack. Got, got, need. It's not the scalpers hawking tickets. It's the refrain of fans sifting through packs of World Cup stickers. Think soccer's answer to baseball cards. Before the 1970 World Cup, four brothers in Italy, the Paninis, began printing collectibles featuring images of players from every country in the competition. More than 50 years later, fans all over the globe scour for that obscure Serbian goalkeeper or elusive Lionel Messi, hoping to complete their albums. The Panini sticker phenomenon has become a booming international business and a central part of the World Cup experience. For millions of soccer fans, the World Cup unofficially began weeks ago when the Panini stickers for this quadrennial event shot onto the market.
8: Yes! Oh
3: in a classroom in the town of Sudbury, England. In the thrumming cities of Sao Paulo and Mexico City. Fans of all stripes embarked on a common treasure hunt. Anybody got that extra Ronaldo one? Collecting 670 stickers depicting the players and teams from this World Cup.
8: I'm like shaking, I finally did it.
3: Also, so they can complete their album.
9: Listen, if you have... Gold or panini sticker today, people would go for the sticker and not the gold.
3: Panini sticker is more valuable than gold, you're saying? Today, yes.
9: In the sports, Francesco
3: Francisco Fernari is the biggest official panini distributor in the United States. An Italian-Venezuelan-American, he is the ultimate panini sticker evangelist.
9: 74.
3: He's completed every sticker album since 1974, including the 2022 vintage many times over.
9: I have already seven.
3: You're you're a man in your 50s. You have seven (laughs) albums completed. And uh,
9: still counting.
3: (laughs) A pack costs $1.20. And Fernari predicts sticker sales from 2022 will reach 100 million packets in the U.S. alone. Nearly a billion worldwide. We're
9: talking about a little piece of paper with some adhesive on it. What makes this so special? John, you gotta understand that you have all your legends, you have all your best players at a distance of, you know, your hand. You can touch them, you can talk to them. It's fantastic.
3: How coveted are these things? When Argentina ran out of stickers in September, its secretary of commerce called an emergency meeting to solve this national crisis. We live in a digital world. How are these paper stickers
9: still this popular? This sensation, John, to get a pack, to rip it out, to smell it, to open it, and to find the place right here, there is no way you can replicate it in an electronic way. So you even have a method for how you're ripping that packet open? Every single pack has to be done in the same way. By the way, I've opened at least Done this before? Probably 2,000 packs up until now. Oh my God, Germany. This was a good one. That was a good pool. I love it.
3: We went to Modena, Italy, to Panini's headquarters, the equivalent of Willy Wonka's factory. As Panini's rolled off the press, 21 hours a day, 11 million packets a day, each containing five stickers. The headliners, Mbappe, Messi, Modric, and the coming stars. Players with four names, and there's Fred. The phenomenon started here, next to the cathedral, at a newspaper kiosk in the center of town. After World War II, Olga Panini, a widow, ran the newsstand with her four sons. Not unlike a soccer team, each had a special skill. The oldest son, Giuseppe, was the dreamer with the big plans.
5: Salute! Salute. We
3: met Giuseppe's son, Antonio, and Giuseppe's nieces, Laura and Lucia Panini, in Modena.
1: He was uh, like a volcano. He had many, many ideas. A volcano? A volcano, yes.
3: Giuseppe's initial idea was to sell cards depicting flowers. And was a disaster. (laughs) But they realized that the
2: formula was okay, not the subject.
3: Short of Lyra, Giuseppe had, as it were, one last shot on goal. It was 1961, and he turned to a new subject, Italian soccer. It was a hit, especially with the kids. Even if production was rudimentary.
2: All the
1: stickers were printed and then were cut, and they were mixing with a shovel at the beginning.
3: To make sure there were no duplicates, yes. they mixed they mix with a the they, shovel.
1: They replaced the shovel. With a churn, the one they use normally for making butter or the cheese. butter churn. Yes, yes. <laughs> mm. And they had a handle and they were moving this handle and was
3: working. Giuseppe's brother Umberto, the family engineer, invented machinery that mixed stickers to prevent dreaded duplicates in each pack. His contraptions were so successful, the designs are still in use today, 60 years later and enabled the brothers to scale up their ambitions. Before the 1970 World Cup in Mexico, they paid $1,000 cash to soccer's governing body to buy the rights to produce stickers of the players, not least the great Pele. Suddenly, Panini became chiefly associated not with a sandwich, but with a worldwide pastime. The growth of the stickers mirroring the growth of soccer.
9: 82, Spain 82.
3: Antonio Allegra, Panini's marketing director, told us how collecting the World Cup albums over the decades became a rite of passage, also a way to mark time.
9: Wow, it's the first appearance for Diego Maradona in a World Cup.
3: This was Maradona's first World Cup? Yeah,
9: yeah, yeah, yeah. This one is Germany, 2006. uh, And uh, here we have a very, very young uh, Massive, yeah, so this, this teenager right here. Yeah, 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 he, He's 19.
3: There are countries that have fallen off the map, and hairstyles that have fallen out of fashion. He looks like the drummer.
8: What and size is that? That's that one, mate.
3: Today, Panini sticker photo shoots, like this one in England, are the World Cup equivalent of school picture day.
8: Lovely, jabbily, thank you.
3: Back in Italy, Marcello Minori is Panini's project manager overseeing image control.
1: Sometimes these pictures are not perfect. Might be too dark. Maybe there's a pimple on someone's face. And we're asked to remove it.
3: A little Photoshop? Correct. I heard one story of of a federation once getting in touch and saying, this this guy's really ugly. Can you do something about that? Yes.
1: It's the truth. Should we name names? No. I'm still working with these people. (laughs)
3: <laughs> so, so what do you do when you get that call?
1: We, first reply is, of course, no, no worry. I mean, we're going to change the picture. Second time, third time, fourth time. The fourth time I will say, listen, this is his face. It's his face. I'm sorry. I mean, we, we did all we, ki- all we could. What do
3: players think of sticker madness? We asked Gigi Buffon who literally saved Italy during its run to the World Cup trophy in 2006. Good ball in Zidane! And what a save by Buffon. One of the greatest ever goalkeepers. At age 44, he's not only still playing, but let's keep this between us, he's still collecting stickers, a hobby since childhood. When you still collect, where are you getting your stickers? Ogni tanto mi piace proprio
5: Now and again, I like the ritual of going to the kiosk to buy, say, 10 packets of stickers. It's a little embarrassing, but now I can say to the kiosk owner, the stickers are for my kids, and he believes me.
3: Buffon let us in on another secret. Do players swap stickers in the locker room?
5: Yes. I think if we were really to investigate all the players in the locker room, I think 60 to 70 percent filled the album.
3: Buffon appeared in four World Cup albums, aging before our eyes. And his. We have visual aids. His favorite sticker was for the 2006 album, the last time Italy triumphed at the World Cup. You've had your picture taken thousands of times, but you understood this is for generations.
5: Yes, for sure. For me, it was a solemn moment. Because there was a kind of respect that I had to show towards Gigi the child and to the dreams of Gigi the child. Del Gigi bimbo. <laughs> An hour from Buffon's practice field in
3: Parma, we met another child at heart, Johnny Bellini. You must have thousands of stickers. Considered the most prolific panini collector in the world. The debut edition, Mexico 1970, is the holy grail of World Cup sticker albums. This guy has five of them, and he ain't selling. Oh my God, jeez, floor to ceiling. He lives in what is less a home than a sticker repository. Even in your daughter's room, you might have baseball cards in your attic. He has half a million stickers spilling out of every drawer. E solo Bellini even has whole sheets of them hidden under a tablecloth. No one is allowed to eat on the table because it's too sacred.
2: It's very rare.
3: These are all rare. Lucky for Johnny, his long-suffering wife, Giovanna, has a sense of humor. Heaven forbid there were a fire tonight. You had to go back into your house. What would you rescue first?
5: Obviously the stickers. If there's a fire, my wife would run away with her own legs.
3: <laughs> your wife can fend for herself, so the stickers can't. Saturday nights are all right for sticking at the Bellini household. While Giovanna watches a movie, Johnny fills his album and never forgets a face. You remember 50 years later what the the last player was you needed to complete the album?
5: I also remember the first sticker that I got in a pack, which was Sergio Carantini, a defender from Vicenza.
3: Like your first girlfriend.
5: (laughs) Her? I don't remember.
3: He's not alone in his soccer nostalgia. Those kids who grew up in the 70s collecting stickers are now grandparents. And parents passing down the tradition, like Francesco Fernari in Florida.
9: Think about this. There is no way you can find a product that you can have different generations doing at the same time. It's fantastic.
3: Here's what else makes it exceptional. Mexico, Polonia. Almost everyone that completes their album does so not through purchase power. Did you want to trade for this one?
0: Oh,
1: yeah. Would you trading that USA one?
3: But through old-fashioned face-to-face trading. Around the world, there are panini sticker swapping sessions that are organized. Others that are impromptu. This next month in the desert of Qatar... One country will lift the trophy, but millions will feel their personal version of World Cup glory. You've seen people complete their albums. What
9: is that feeling like when you get that very last sticker? Let me put it this way. Whenever you play soccer and you score a goal in the final of the tournament, that's kind of the feeling you have whenever you complete an album.
3: It's an old-timey analog hobby, no screen required. It relies on the humanity of touch. I'll take Fred. It's got pillow. Okay, thanks. And the value is largely sentimental. But in these tribal, polarized times, leave it to stickers to take people and countries and bind them together.
4: Yes, the Argentine team. There are more than 75,000 wild horses roaming public land in the West. Wild horses are the descendants of domesticated horses, the first brought here by Spanish explorers 500 years ago. By 1971, their numbers were dwindling, and Congress stepped in, passing a law to protect this romantic fragment of our history. It worked almost too well. Today, federal land managers say the number of wild horses is nearly three times what it should be and left unchecked, their population can double every five years. So when we heard about a program in Wyoming designed to rein in the wild horses and an unlikely group of men, we headed west. It's hard to imagine anything surviving on this stretch of badlands in northern Wyoming. Sagebrush blankets the high desert all the way to the Rocky Mountains. But in this empty quarter of the cowboy state is a thundering herd of mustangs. Untouched, wild, and breathtakingly beautiful. But wild horses can also wreck the rangelands they roam. Government land managers say in the West, wild horses are competing with cattle and wildlife for increasingly scarce water and food, and their overpopulation often further strains the environment. So the Federal Bureau of Land Management regularly rounds up wild horses, mainly by using small helicopters to locate, capture, and truck them off to corrals or enclosed pastures like this one. A horse can live for about 20 years, and most of these horses will remain here until they die. The Wind River Wild Horse Sanctuary outside Lander, Wyoming, is run by Jess Oldham and his family. Talk about the horses that are here. For most of them, this is it, right?
0: Yes, ma'am. We have the 225 long-term residents and-
4: Long-term residents. Long-term (laughs) residents. Sounds like a nursing home. That's what I
0: call them. I mean, they're part of our family and and, uh, they're gonna be here long-term. And there they go. Yes, ma'am.
4: The 1,400-acre facility is on an Indian reservation. The Oldhams are one of dozens of contractors paid by the government to feed and care for Mustangs after they've been removed from the wild. Activists want the horses to remain free. Why not just let the wild horses be wild and run?
0: The harsh reality is ecosystems are a delicate balance of each species coexisting together in the environment. There is a limited amount of resources in grass, in water, and the wild horses are a very dominant species. They're smart, they're fast, they eat a lot of food, um, and they need to be properly managed.
4: Keeping count of all those horses is Hollywood Dell, the division chief of the program that oversees wild horses for the Bureau of Land Management. How many wild horses is the government now caring for? So we are currently caring for over
6: 57,000 wild horses. And
4: caring for them is not inexpensive.
6: No. Uh, The cost of care for wild horses in our off-range corrals and pastures
4: was two-thirds of our budget last year, which was a little over $70 million. $70 million to care for the wild horses? Taxpayer dollars. To relieve some of the burden on taxpayers, last year the Bureau says 3,742 Mustangs came off the government rolls through an incentive program that pays individuals $1,000 to adopt one wild horses attract (laughs) relatively few takers. But these horses did. Picked for their youth, balance and temperament that are sent to be trained in, of all places, prisons like the Wyoming Honor Farm. It's a 640-acre compound of tidy buildings, manicured lawns, cattle and enough hay to feed them. It may look like a dude ranch, but this is a state-run minimum security prison with felons working the land and the horses. There are no towers or armed guards. A simple four-foot cattle fence marks the perimeter between the prison and the town of Riverton, Wyoming.
8: You know, Wyoming has a tendency to do things a little differently because we're a smaller state, and I think uh, it, it's one of those things until you see it, you can't actually believe it yourself.
4: Curtis Moffitt has spent his entire career in corrections. Dudes. He's the warden on the farm and about the only one here who doesn't wear cowboy boots to work. The thing that struck me, when you drive up, you see a four-foot-high cattle fence. What's to stop an inmate from making a run for it or riding off into the sunset?
8: Realistically, himself. Most of these guys are at the end of their sentence. So most of them don't want to destroy that or, you know, catch another number, um, do another five years or so. It's on them to make sure that they're going to do things the right way.
4: Most inmates have earned the right to be here, transferred for good behavior from more restrictive state prisons. And each day, about 30 inmates report to work in a maze of chutes and pens with wild horses weighing up to 1,000 pounds. Their job is to transform these mustangs from wild burdens of the state into riding horses that can fetch thousands at auction.
10: These guys are here to do their time, but it's really about changing their life, put a change in them in a positive direction.
4: Yeah. Travis Shootman is the cowboy in charge. He's the manager of the farm. Come on, beauty queens. Shootman spent his life teaching the art of training horses. It shows in a stride kinked by old fractures.
10: Have you ever had a halter on this horse, Mr. Sucor? Never.
4: And a voice both firm and calm, as much for the inmates as the horses.
10: Do the rope-a-dope and throw the rope into your hand. Do not get kicked.
4: It takes time to train a wild horse, but Schutman says there's nothing special about how it starts.
10: You walk them in there like you just kind of rip off the Band-Aid and a human goes in there. Don't chase him. Whoa.
4: What's the next step?
10: Then you teach them to yield the pressure, so you stop the forward movement, teach them that if they move forward towards you, the pressure goes away. And then from there, you get to where you can touch them, you get to where you can pet them, introduce a halter, get them halter broke. And then you have that trust, like they understand if they give up their right of flight to stay with you. There's some trust there. Mm
4: -hmm. Are you talking about the horses or the The
10: horses. Keep going, hey. We are in the people business and helping the horses is extra, but the guys really learn a lot of life lessons from the horses. They learn to try, they learn to not lie to themselves about their feelings, they learn to control whether it's the highest of high emotions or the lowest of low emotions.
4: No one here breaks a horse. The method used at the farm is called gentling. Force is replaced by patience, persistence, and an even keel.
2: Good job. Right here.
4: In any pen on any day, you can see it play out. A ballet in dusty boots. A delicate dance of inches repeated a 100 times over, days in the making for this. The first human touch. Next door, a Mustang in full gallop. A runaway train yields and stops on command. There you, go. there you go. You got a good win. We're watching all these things step by step by step, but this doesn't happen overnight.
10: No, sometimes it'll take four weeks. Sometimes it'll take four months to do these steps. And a wild horse takes a little bit longer sometimes.
4: Michael Davis has been riding horses his whole life. He's serving 15 to 20 years for voluntary manslaughter. He's eligible for parole in a little over three years.
3: If you're mad, if you're scared, that horse knows before you ever even touch him, you know, that how they know I don't. You have to control your feelings considerably with the horse because it, it is so easy for, for them to pick up on your mood. So
4: you're good at controlling your feelings with the horse, but with people, how are you doing? Not real great. <laughs> we are still working on that? I have on my that.
3: moments. I'm still working on it, but we're getting better.
4: Davis is an old cowboy, and one of only a few inmates here who can handle this. Hey. This horse has never had a man on its back until now. Hey! Whoa! A remarkable skill that can't be acquired without a few scars.
3: I've got a broken ankle, a separated shoulder, a broken collarbone, ditches in my head, broken hand, fingers, lots of fingers.
4: What's the program taught you? What's it meant to you?
3: A little piece of freedom. I mean, I'm wearing boots and jeans instead of hospital scrubs. And, I mean, it's hot out here, but it's a good hot. It's as close to being outside as I can get until I get outside.
4: Out here, it's easy to forget this is a prison with 300 inmates under the watchful eye of Warden Moffitt. People at home will say, like, these guys are felons. They've done terrible things, committed awful crimes, ruined families. Why should they be allowed to... Be out here to be trusted to be working with these horses.
8: We don't provide the sentence to them. We don't provide the punishment for them. The judge decided all that. Um, our job is to supervise them while they're in here, um, and hopefully return them to societies where they're responsible individuals, where they can be law-abiding citizens. I, I think this program goes a long way to do that. And I want to make sure they get out, and, and we can believe that they're going to be successful and they aren't going to reoffend.
4: You want to make sure, right? That. The horses aren't returned and the inmates don't return. Is that fair to say? Right. In Wyoming, the recidivism rate is below 30 percent. And if you're wondering about that four-foot cattle fence, well, the warden says in the last 22 years, fewer than 10 inmates have made a run for it.
3: Come
8: back down to a walk.
4: Staying on the right side of the fence is not lost on Peyton Sukor, an inmate serving seven to ten years for aggravated assault. He transferred from a maximum security prison a year ago and came here with no experience working with horses. What's it like to step into a pen the first time with a wild 800-pound horse?
0: Adrenaline, heart-pounding excitement. But I was excited to do it because once you get a horse to go the direction you want and then come and join up to you and you turn around and he's right there and it's like, wow, this animal, this connection, this feeling. I can't explain it.
4: What has this taught you about yourself?
0: It's taught me responsibility. It's taught me what I want to do for a career when I get out of here. And this makes you look at life a whole different way.
8: Whoa.
4: And Sukor's patience and feel are paying off. Whoa, at auction, a gilding like this one could sell for thousands, right but it's not without a little heartache. Nice. Is it hard to see them go?
0: It is But at the same time, we're not doing this just for us. We're doing it for them, too. It's a second chance for them as well.
4: Have you ridden him without a tie-down? Yes, ma'am. This September, the Honor Farm held its second auction of the year. Hundreds of buyers came to the prison from all over the country to inspect these horses and query their trainers. A little like kicking the tires on a car lot. Hit $500 now, make it five, make it five, anybody put them at five. Then now, each Mustang takes half, the now, main stage, trotting 000, and half, loping, sold half. to the highest bidder. Sold out, $2,500. All right, here we go. In all, 34 horses fetch $65,000 for the Bureau of Land Management, an achievement almost as good as the look on the inmates' faces. But remember Michael Davis, the old cowboy who couldn't be bucked? We noticed he wasn't at the auction. The warden told us he was suspended for not getting along with others. Gentling a horse and rehabilitating the man don't always happen on the same clock. By high noon, every Mustang had a new home. And for this wild bunch, gentling has its virtues. I think I know the answer to this. If you were a betting man, would you bet a psychologist is quicker to change the behavior of a man? A doctor, a therapist? Or a horse?
10: I think a horse, 100%. And that's just purely Travis Shutman talking, but the horses are a major role in what betters those men. They can teach you life lessons every step of every way. Teach you that you got something in you that you didn't think you had. They can teach you that it's okay to be afraid, but it can still be done. Nothing's impossible. There's so many life lessons.
5: Now, an update on a story we first reported in March 2021 on NASA's plans to go back to the Moon. After months of delays this past Wednesday, Artemis 1, NASA's new Moon rocket carrying an unmanned Orion crew capsule, rose into Florida's night sky. One change from the Apollo days of the 1970s is that Artemis is being led largely by women. Launch director Charlie Blackwell-Thompson told us NASA plans its next moon launch, Artemis 2, in 2024, this time with a crew on board, followed by Artemis 3. Where then we will go to the surface of the moon. Do you hear yourself? You know how cool that sounds?
4: (laughs) It does sound pretty cool.
5: I'm Bill Whitaker. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. Happy Thanksgiving! If you like
0: 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Are you a fan of 60 Minutes? You can represent the most watched series on television with shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and more at paramountshop.com. You could take 20% off with code Minutes20. That's 20% off at checkout on all 60 Minutes products with code Minutes20 at paramountshop.com.
6: Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.